This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tifsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke three thousand proverbs, and his songs were a thousand and five. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard his wisdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Josh, one of the pastors here. Glad to be with you this morning. Thanks for coming in out of the cold, braving the snow to be here. Let's pray as we, uh, we look at this passage together this morning. Father, we are uh, grateful for the chance to be together and to worship. We pray even as we... Uh, sit under your word, that you would help us to both uh, interpret, understand, uh, but also to apply these words to our lives, our life together as a people, our lives as individuals as well. We we pray knowing that we need the power of the Holy Spirit to do those things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we've been uh, talking about the rise and the fall of King Solomon here in the new year. And the last couple of weeks, the theme really has been the wisdom of Solomon. Week one, we saw Solomon crowned with, uh, or crowned as the new king in Israel, a young man in his 20s. And compared to his father, David, before him, he has relatively little experience. And he knows this. He feels sort of in over his head uh, for this role. And so when God comes to Solomon and says, ask, what shall I give you? Solomon asks, for wisdom. And we looked at that prayer for wisdom in the first week. And then last week, Brian helped us to see some of that wisdom in action as Solomon adjudicated a difficult case between two women. And our text today is also about wisdom, although uh, from a different angle. Here, the author of the book of Kings uh, zooms out 
to look at the kingdom as a whole, the nation as a whole, and we see the fruit of Solomon's wisdom played out across the nation. This is a portrayal of a wise king ruling wisely. A wise king ruling wisely, and then the benefits that flow from that wisdom down through the nation, through the kingdom. And the title of the sermon this morning is The Peaceable Kingdom. And that title comes from uh, the title of a painting uh, by the 19th century Pennsylvania artist Edward Hicks. Maybe you've seen this picture before. It's actually not just one painting, but a series of them. There are 62 known versions of this painting by Edward Hicks, all on a single theme. It's based on the beautiful promise from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, which says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lay down with the kid, the calf, the young lion, and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. It's a, a, a prophecy about the coming of the kingdom of God and the peace that shall come. And so Hicks is painting in this portrait a scene of, of warmth, and peace and intimacy. He's trying to paint a picture of shalom. And that really is what the the writer of Kings is doing here in chapter four. We get a look now at Israel at its very best, certainly Solomon at his very best. Now, if the peaceable kingdom doesn't do it for you, maybe a more contemporary analogy might be the Lego movie. Some of you might have seen that, right? Remember the title track for the song at the beginning, right? Everything is awesome, right? Uh, everything is uh, awesome when you're living out a dream. Everything is cool when you're part of a team, right? Very much, First Kings 4 is everything is awesome. That could be the header in your Bible over this section. So let's see what we learn as we look uh, at this passage. First, we'll see some features of Solomon's wisdom. Verse 29, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. God answered Solomon's prayer, right? He gave him wisdom and understanding beyond measure, it says. It also speaks of the wideness of Solomon's intellect, the breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. In other words, Solomon was not like me. When I took the ACT, some of you are too young to remember when you had to take standardized tests before school. Uh, when I took the ACT summer after my junior year of high school, uh, I got a, te- a call uh, about a, a month later, four or six weeks later, something like that, from the testing agency, someone from the testing agency. They called. I had no idea why. I thought maybe they thought I cheated or something, but no, it wasn't that. Uh, instead, they called to see if the test was perhaps broken in some way, because my reading and writing score was at one level, and my math score (laughs) was at a very disparate level, so much so that they were wondering, could this possibly be a test taken by the same person? And so they asked, is there something wrong with the scoring of the test? And I had to say, no, I just really am that dumb at math. Solomon was not like that, right? He had breadth of mind, right brain, left brain. It was all working together. He was a Renaissance man of sorts. Verse 30, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East, all the wisdom of Egypt. Remember the Magi and the the story uh, we just looked at a few weeks ago during the Christmas season, the Advent season, the, the wise men, remember, come from the east, and they were, they were kings, they were magi, they were wise men, they had wisdom. Egypt, which is to the west, is also known for its wisdom literature, and just an important thing to note here, you know, the Bible has no problem acknowledging that real wisdom can exist 
from outside of God's people. Theologians call this common grace. Common grace. People who bear the image of God, even those who don't know him, who aren't in relationship to him, they can still say and do extraordinary things. We should be willing to learn from all sources of wisdom that we can find. You know, St. Augustine had no problem acknowledging his debt to Plato. Thomas Aquinas had no problem quoting Aristotle. The Apostle Paul had no problem quoting pagan philosophers. Robert Rayburn says this, here we have in this text, as so often in the Bible, the cheerful acknowledgement of the giftedness, we have that quote, yeah, the giftedness and the God-likeness of all human beings, not just the people whom God has brought into covenant with himself. The people around you are extraordinary in their gifts and talents. You ought to tell them that because they don't realize it. They take it all for granted. It's a good way to begin a conversation. You don't realize how extraordinary you actually are. In my experience, people like to hear that. You should probably know the person before you just go out and tell them you don't know how, unless you're trying to you know, get a date, in which case, you know, go for it. Uh, but I think he's right. In my experience, people like to hear that. By all means, we should look for the giftedness, call out the giftedness of the people around us. But, but the point of our text is that Solomon's wisdom exceeded all these other sources of wisdom, so much so that in verse 34, people are coming from all the surrounding nations to learn from him. Verse 31, for he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan, the Ezraite, and Heman, not He-Man, that's a Saturday morning cartoon, Heman, Calcol, Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. Now, these names are unfamiliar to us, but the original readers of the book of Kings, they would have known these names. Ethan and Heman were temple poets. They wrote Psalm 88 and Psalm 89. The other names in the list uh, occur in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 6. They were temple choristers known for their great wisdom. And here the author says, Solomon's wisdom exceeded them all. Let's talk about some of the features of his wisdom. And, and the first thing that is uh, really just uh, obvious and, and worth calling attention to is Solomon's incredible productivity. His incredible productivity, verse 32 says, he spoke 3,000 Proverbs. Now that's more than three times the book of Proverbs we have. And so we have the book of Proverbs, which is amazing, but beyond that, the breadth, the productivity of, of Solomon's teaching and his wisdom. And it says his songs were 1,005. Now Taylor Swift has written 221 songs. So you know what that means. Solomon's greater than Taylor Swift. Now, some of you are going to fight me on this, I know, but listen, not just sheer quantity of songs written, but the durability of these things. We're still singing Psalm 27, or 127 in Psalm 72. If, if Shake It Off is still going 3,000 years from now, then we, can, <laughs> then we can have a debate about Taylor versus Solomon. But hey, just for comparison... Bob Dylan's written 600 songs. Wow, that's a lot. Paul McCartney's written 1,059 songs, right? Right there with Solomon. But I would add, Paul McCartney didn't have to run a nation while he was trying to write songs, right? Woody Guthrie's written 3,000 songs. But to be fair, like a lot of those are just little snippets, right? It's just like a chorus over and over and over again. Now, maybe though, Solomon would even have to bow before Charles Wesley, who wrote 6,500 hymns. But then again, some of Charles Wesley's songs were based 
on the writings of the biblical authors like Solomon, all right? So maybe even Solomon should get uh, a writer's credit for that. But here's the point. Tremendous output, right? A shelf full of bestsellers, a wall full of platinum records. Of course, he wrote Song of Songs. I mentioned Psalm 72 and Psalm 127. Incredible productivity. But secondly, a feature of Solomon's wisdom is his curiosity. Verse 33, he spoke of trees, From the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall, he spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. This can seem like a first glance, an oddly specific list, right? Like the kid who's super into dinosaurs or something, uh, or like my son who's super into shipwrecks and can tell you like at what level, you know, in terms of sea depth, you know, each shipwreck is. But, but here, it's not a random list. If you go back to Genesis 1, these are the main categories of God's creation, particularly as Genesis 1, the, the, the writer of Genesis, lays out the, the living things, right? The beasts of the land and the birds of the air and the reptiles and the fish. In other words, the writer here is saying that Solomon is interested in all of it, the whole realm of what God has made. And Ralph Davis explained it this way. He said, since God has left the fingerprints of his wisdom everywhere, Since there's no place where God does not furnish us with raw materials for godly thinking, Christians should be seized with a rambunctious curiosity to ponder God's works, both the majestic and the mundane. The task of wisdom is to joyfully describe and investigate all God's works. We may not be Solomon's in insight, but we can gratefully examine the same data. It really is a great and godly thing to be a learner. Studier. It's a way to honor and glorify God who made the heavens and the earth. And so as we study anatomy and botany and chemistry and physics and mathematics and music and poetry and history, the study of all these things is a way to honor and glorify the majestic God who made all the world. And, and then vocationally in your jobs. Listen, look, you might, you, might have, you might have heard that if you really love Jesus, you need to be a preacher or a missionary or something. And of course, if that is your calling, then that's a great thing. But there are so many other lawful and godly callings. Any vocation where we make things useful and make things beautiful, any ways that we can learn and understand and explain and teach about the world that God has made. These are wonderful things to pursue. Solomon, the wisest of men, studies God's world. Maybe you're thinking, all right, what if I just... uh, What if I sit around and make spreadsheets all day? What if that's my job? Well, there's good news for you too because part of the features of Solomon's wisdom is administration. We didn't read the first 19 verses of the chapter, but there's a long list of all kinds of categories and and names. And Solomon at, at the beginning of the chapter uses his wisdom to appoint a cabinet. The first thing a wise leader does is surround himself or surround herself with capable people. And then there's a list of administrative districts districts that Solomon sets up. And what's interesting there is it doesn't fall along the traditional lines of tribal boundaries. He's administrating, he's strategizing the best way to get things done, the best way to do logistics, the most efficient way to bring services throughout the kingdom. And so if you do anything in your job or just in your life to bring order out of chaos, you're using wisdom. God gave Solomon great wisdom. It was God's gift to him. And then Solomon put it to work. And you too 
are called to use those gifts that God has given you, whatever they may be. So Solomon's wisdom. But secondly, let's talk about the results of this as it plays out in the kingdom of Israel. And the big result, the heading over it all, is what you might just call unprecedented prosperity. This is a time in Israel's history of unprecedented prosperity. And how does this manifest? Well, first, enjoy. Look at verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Verses 22 and 23 go on to describe the abundance of Solomon's table. And there's all kinds of measurements that are included in there and all the mention of different kinds of food and drink that are designed to impress us. If we were early readers of this, we would have recognized this as a tremendous abundance of meat and drink and all kinds of delicacies provided at Solomon's table. And Peter Lightheart says this. He says, Solomon's judicial and administrative wisdom finds its telos, that is its culmination, its end. Solomon's judicial and administration wisdom find its telos in the joy of a table. Finds its end in the joy of a table. Harmony, celebration, feasting, joy, all symbolically coming together in the joy of the table. Secondly, in terms of results here, this wisdom played out, uh, peace. The end of verse 24, and he had peace And all sides around him, verse 25, and Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. You know, Joshua had to lead a conquest in order to enter the land, to take the land of promise, difficult battles, all kinds of skirmishes, judges. The period after this was a time of near constant fighting for Israel, David, The king solidified things, but only after defeating all kinds of enemies, chief among them the Philistines. But with Solomon comes a kingdom of peace. And this was a national peace, a peace for the entirety of the nation. But people experienced this peace also personally, individually. It says, every man under his vine, every man under his fig tree. This was a a common expression in the ancient Near East for, for the good life. Right? Every man under his vine and under his fig tree. In other words, it wasn't just subsistence living. It wasn't just getting by. The people were able to work and enjoy the fruit of their labor. So joy and peace. Also here we see the fulfillment of promises. Particularly the promises that were made to Abraham now are being realized in Solomon's kingdom. Dale Ralph Davis summarizes what he calls the quad promises that were made to Abraham, a fourfold promise that was made with Abraham's covenant. God said, I will make from you a people, descendants that will be like stars in the sky or like the sand on the seashore. I will give you a place. I will give you a home. I will give you a nation, a land. I will give you protection. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And then finally, I'll give you a program. I'll give you a calling as a people. It won't be just that I bless you as a nation, but that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And don't we see all of these things, to some extent, happening in our passage? Verse 20, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea, right? That's people. Verse 24, for he had dominion. Over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tipsa to Gaza, this directly harkens back to God's promise 
to the geographical bounds of this land that was to be given to Abraham in Genesis 15 and Genesis 22, that's place. Protection, they had peace on all sides, it says in verse 24. Program, verse 34, the nations are streaming in to benefit from the wisdom of Solomon. But don't miss verse 29, which says, and God gave Solomon wisdom. God gave Solomon wisdom. It's easy to read a text like this and just think, all right, this is about how great Solomon is. And it is that. But the writer wants us to know and to acknowledge in our minds and our hearts and with our mouths that God is the one who's behind all of this. All of this is under the banner of the generosity of God. And when we're thinking about worship, when we're thinking about our view of the Lord, right, it's a text like this that ought to remind us we have a generous God, a generous God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with the question, what is the chief end of man? What is the, the primary purpose of all of humanity. What is the chief end of man? The answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And I wonder, do you think of God like that? As somebody who's to be enjoyed? Yes, you should serve him. Yes, you should obey him. You should enjoy him. The generosity of God is on display here to Solomon, but to all of God's people and to the kingdom as a whole. God's generosity ought to make us not think of him as a harsh taskmaster who's measuring to see how you measure up each time, but rather to see God as a generous father who's welcoming you to his table. It seems to be the high point, right? Pretty close to it. Israel is a kingdom of Solomon's reign, I told you earlier that Edward Hicks painted 62 versions of the peaceable kingdom. And uh, Phil Riken, the, the president of Wheaton College, he notes in one of his books that something strange happened to Hicks throughout the years. And this was reflected in the versions of this painting. Though he continued to paint the same scene, there were small changes that happened over time. The animals in the pictures gradually became more tense and more uneasy. He started to paint them further and further apart from one another. And by the time the final versions of the paintings were made, some of the animals were fighting and tearing at one another with snarling teeth. And Riken says that this change was not just in the paintings themselves, but within the artist's perspective, because Hicks witnessed so much disunity and disharmony in his town, in his community, in his church that he began to lose confidence in the nearness or the possibility of a truly peaceable kingdom in the here and now anyway. In some ways, that's kind of the point of the Lego movie too. Right? You soon learn after that opening song that everything was not awesome for everybody. And as we go in Kings, we're going to see Something similar. Though 1 Kings 4 is an extremely positive portrayal of Solomon's kingdom, it absolutely is that. It's an extremely positive portrayal of a wise king ruling wisely. But even here, there are some shadows that lie over the edges of the sunny picture of Israel's prosperity. Before we finish this morning, I just want to point out just a few of these that we can see. Starting with verse 21, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms, from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt, they brought tribute 
and served Solomon all the days of his life. This is describing vassal states, right? The, the, the subordinate powers. These vassal states, Israel was the suzerain, Israel's the main power. These were like colonies, and the colonies would bring tribute into Jerusalem. They would bring tribute to the king. The idea was, right, you bring us your stuff, and we won't invade you. Now, on the one hand, this is a refreshing turn of events for the people of Israel because they had been on the other end of this for so long, right? They had been enslaved people for 400 years in Egypt. They would again in a few years be a conquered people to the Assyrians and then to the Babylonians and to the Persians and to the Romans. And so here Israel's on the, on the good side of these things. It feels pretty nice. And when you look at the prophecies about ultimate uh, fulfillment of the kingdom of God in Isaiah 60 and then in the New Testament in Revelation 21, there's a picture of the kingdom of God with the wealth of the nations streaming into the holy city. It says the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Isn't that what's being realized here? Not exactly. At least not fully. Because in Revelation 21 and Isaiah 60... The nations are bringing their glory into the city of God, but they also are becoming part of the city of God. People from every tribe and tongue and nation are bringing their glory into the holy city, but they also are becoming part of this city. They're enfolded into the people of God. They're enjoying the blessings of the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Here in our story, the vassal states come in and drop their tribute off, but then they go back home poorer for it. Solomon's kingdom, with all of its triumph, with all of its greatness, should not be confused with the fullness of the kingdom of God. Now, let's keep reading. Verse 26, Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Now, that doesn't mean probably much to you, other than it's a lot, but in the ancient world, right, horses and chariots, these are the state-of-the-art weapon systems, right? If you've got a lot of these, you're in pretty good shape, right? These are the best weapons that you could have. And so to acquire as many as possible gives you a place of strength from which to operate from. It gives you power. It's a, it's a strong national defense. It's sensible. But remember, when Israel first began to ask for a king, the prophet Samuel, he, he did not like this idea, right? Remember Samuel pushed back on this. He said, you've already got a king. Yahweh is your king. Uh, God is our king. We don't need a human king. But they keep begging. And eventually God acquiesces to this. He's going to give him a king. But, but Samuel still warns. He says, if you get a king, you know what's going to happen. You're going to be just like all the other nations. You're going to lose your distinctiveness. You're going to value what they value. You're going to trust what they trust. You're going to think what keeps them safe is what keeps you safe. We always used to be a Psalm 20 people, right? Psalm 20 verse 7 says, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Samuel says, if you get a king, you're going to be just like everybody else. And you know what? Even before Samuel, way back before that, when Moses commanded the people in Deuteronomy chapter 17, he said this, only he, that is the king, must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he, the king, shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And so in our chapter, here we see early in his reign, 
Solomon doing precisely what the law of God orders him not to do. And this hint of trouble here is more explicit later on. When we get to chapter 10, where we read that Solomon imports these horses, you know, where, where, where does he go to get them? You can probably guess. Goes to Egypt, just what Deuteronomy 17 says not to do. And then this is just the beginning. Further on, 1 Kings 10 and 11, we see the king's heart captured by silver and gold. And then he takes lots of wives and these wives bring their gods into Jerusalem with them. And Solomon's heart is turned away from the one true God. Even in this really positive chapter, we see the seeds of what is to come. But there's more. Verse six talks about forced labor. Hence that heavy taxation on the people. Both of these are contributing factors later on to the division of the kingdom after Solomon, Rehoboam takes over and it's, it's forced labor, it's heavy taxes that cause a rift amongst the people of God. Everything is awesome for a little bit. But soon things fall apart and the writer of Kings will have us see that Solomon is not the one who is ultimately gonna bring the kingdom of God, not in its fullness. And I think this has something to say to all of our utopian dreams, whether we have an idealized time in our past that we're pining away for, whether it be Calvin's Geneva or Knox's Scotland. I don't think anybody really pines away for at least the climate in Scotland. Also not the dentistry in like 17th century Scotland. Or maybe more likely, maybe we're pining for a particular time in America's history or whether it's not backward, but we're looking forward, we've got our hopes, if we can just get the right person in office, we get the right program, the right social project, our hopes and dreams will be realized. Listen, all of these things can be great. All of them can be noble. They can be good. They, there could be good things that we work for, but our hope, our hope, our hope if we're Christian has to be in the kingdom that only Jesus can bring. Better than everything is awesome is Sandra McCracken's song, Abiding City, which is based on Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, which says, for we have not here an abiding city, but we seek after the city which is to come. Here's just a couple of verses from her song. Oh, sweet home of love and peace, where there pilgrims tired and trouble rest, into the hopes of Zion lean, where in Jesus' arms we will fall at last. Addictions, empty promises, this broken world just can't satisfy. A sweeter song, redemption's bliss, is sealed for us in paradise. Oh, lift up your heads, for the day is near, and we have no abiding city here. It goes on, spirit, heal our neighborhood until your kingdom work is done. Oh, teach us what is just and good as we look for the city that is yet to come. A city filled with gold and light, God the builder and the architect. And when our faith has turned to sight, oh, I cannot imagine it. Oh, lift up your head for the day is near and we have no abiding city here. Do not confuse any human kingdom for the kingdom of God, nor any leader or king for the true king. Jesus said of himself, something greater than Solomon is here. And so friends, we have to look to the true king, the one who's greater even than Solomon. And the invitation is to come to him, to come and to feast at his table even this morning, to serve him by doing his kingdom work and finally to rest in his peace as we wait for his kingdom to come. 
Let's pray together this morning. We will come and celebrate at his table. Would you pray with me? Father, we do give thanks for uh, your word, for this text in particular this morning. We are very much in need of wisdom, wisdom to tackle the things that are before us even this week, the, the quandaries, the difficulties, the, the normal duties of our daily life, our vocation, our, our families, the relationships we have to navigate. We pray for wisdom. We need it. And we trust in the, the wonderful promises that you give us, that you are a God who is generous and, and delights to answer the prayers of his children, especially when we ask for things like wisdom. And Lord, we pray too that you might turn our hearts and our minds ultimately to the world that is yet to come, that even as we do pray and work for kingdom concerns here, that we might not misplace our hopes, that you would deliver us from an over-realized eschatology, that we would indeed trust only and ultimately in your kingdom that is to come and in Jesus, the bringer of this kingdom. Give us uh, strength and perseverance to wait. Give us hope and joy as we do so. And would you meet us now? even at your table, as we seek these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.